Let me encourage you to, to follow in your own Bibles as I read from Peter's first epistle, chapter 5, and uh, the first seven verses. Hear the word of the true and living God. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Great God of heaven, we bow before you tonight, conscious, O Lord, of our frailties, how feeble we are. And we who are ministers are reminded, O God, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and and not of us. And, O Lord, we are indeed reminded of that tonight. I pray that you would be pleased to come and to do what no mere preacher could ever do, that you would open your word to the hearts of these, your dear people, And, O Lord, that it might be expounded to your praise and to our profit. And we would plead this, believing that such a blessing as this was purchased at the expense of your own beloved son's death. We ask in his name. Amen. Now, we began looking last Lord's Day evening at the subject of the dangers of spiritual pride and I think I began, first of all, saying what pride is not so that we wouldn't be misguided with a false sense of pride. Pride is, it is not prideful to be convinced that you are one of God's children, that you have been born again, and that you're one of his. And I listed a number of those, and then we began to look at what are the traits of spiritual pride? What are the traits of spiritual pride, and we began to look at what are the inward traits of spiritual pride, and I want to continue that tonight and then begin to look at the outward manifestations of spiritual pride as well, and then if Lord willing in the future, we will come back to this whole subject of humility and the benefits that we are to gain by it. But you'll remember last time that as we considered the inward traits of spiritual pride, we saw that the first trait of 
inward spiritual pride is that of self-righteousness. That of self-righteousness. And uh, then we saw that the second trait of inward spiritual pride consists in such prevailing attitudes as ingratitude, discontent, covetousness, ingratitude for what God has done for us, discontent with where God has placed us, and covetousness over what God has done for others and what he has not done for us, which involves some jealousy as well. But tonight, as I begin, I want to come to this third trait of inward spiritual pride, and it's one that we might call secret boastfulness. Secret boastfulness. Wherein we whisper to ourselves the way the man told himself about how of all of his hard work had finally paid off in the end, that his barns were full and overflowing. I'm thinking of the passage in Luke chapter 12. And that he would now enjoy the benefits of that security for many years. And yet was utterly unaware that that very night God would require his soul of him. We can talk to ourselves like that if we're not careful. At the end of a Lord's Day, for example, when we as the ministers of God have... um, been enabled by him to labor productively, first in the preparation of the sermon and then in the delivery, the preaching of the sermon of God. And it has helped us and the people of God have been blessed by it. And then dear saints, precious saints, loving people, loving their pastors and wanting to encourage them have come up to us and they have spoken to us what we immediately recognize as exaggerated terms pastor never heard a sermon like that never heard a sermon like that that's got to be the best sermon on that text that i've ever heard and as a pastor you know immediately in your heart that that's an exaggeration jonathan edwards whom i've been reading on this is got some many insights on spiritual pride. And he says, most often that we as ministers, we throw off those kinds of flatteries. But it is the flattering, he says, that is more artfully crafted. The one that comes and says, you know, pastor, it was the third point of your sermon. How did you put that? That was masterful. Edward says almost no minister is able to resist the temptation of that kind of flattery. And we go back and we think about it. And, and it is right that the people of God should encourage their pastors. I hope that you'll always encourage your pastors. We don't want to discourage that. It's right and it's good. But, dear people, it is the responsibility of those of us who are ministers to interpret what the dear saints say and the reality of the light of the grace of God. And if one isn't careful, one begins to believe everything that the dear saints tell him. I remember I've mentioned this this. <laughs> incident to a number of you years back. I remember not long after I was out of seminary and I was um, 
And, of course, at the time, I was still a Baptist, even though I went to Reformed Seminary. You'd think seminary would do something for you. But I was ministering at this uh, country Baptist church, and, uh, you know, you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, I've been to seminary, and these are just a bunch of country folk. And uh, so you do the best you can, and you think you're doing fairly well. But I remember one day as I was coming out of that church, I'd been there, oh, I guess for about 11 months. And uh, one dear lady came out and met me at the door, and she says, you know, Brother David, I'm amazed. She says, every week you're getting better and better. Your sermons, I, I see improvement every week. Every week, you're, you're just improving. She says, you know, in about five years, you'll be a half-decent preacher. <laughs> now, that dear lady helped me with my sanctification. <laughs> it was good for me to hear that. So we need to be careful to listen to what the saints tell us, but don't always listen to everything, especially when we know that it is an exaggeration. I don't think that lady was exaggerating. But there are times when we're tempted to think and to covet and to credit far more to ourselves than ever should be lawful to enter into our mind, tempted to forget the reality, how in the preparation of the sermon we were struggling with a certain part of the text, and we couldn't figure out how to state it in a way that made any sense. And we cried to God that we would never be able to preach that text if he didn't intervene. And he did. And he gave some light and he gave some understanding how to put it into words that even the children could understand. And we took that in the pulpit. But then in the act of preaching, we forget. We forget. And sometimes when we're preaching and we're looking around and we see some sleepy saints and we begin to cry to God and we say, oh God, help me. I am lifeless. I am dull. I am stammering. Please come and give me some help. And he did. And the dear saints woke up and they encouraged us at the door. But we forget in the moment of flattery that it was God who helped us. That it was God who came to our aid and to our assistance. And under the euphoria of a sermon blessed by the Spirit of God and praised by the people of God, we forget what a miracle it is that anything spoken by these lips should ever enter the recesses of a man or a woman's heart at all. How we cannot make that happen. How it's all of God and not of us. But we forget and we begin to boast to ourselves. Well, you know, that was a pretty good sermon. That was a good text. And I think I did explain it rather well. Now, those inward thought processes, they can lead to a potentially fatal self-confidence, a creature confidence, wherein we pray less and less. And depend more and more, perhaps upon our exegetical or homiletical skills. The fire and the light comes from God. It does not come from us. And when we begin to boast to ourselves, we stop praying. And by the sheer 
effort of our sermon preparation. It may give the appearance of being just as good and as sound as ever, but there's no power. And we begin to cry to God and we begin to dry up. Dear are people, that's a bad place for a minister to be. And that's why even the minister must guard against it. But then there is a fourth trait of inward spiritual pride. And this inward trait of spiritual pride is a hatred of correction. A hatred of correction. We tend not to view it as hatred. We might simply think of it as a profound sadness that we're criticized and that we've been rebuked. But it's a sadness that tends emotionally to cripple us. And that can be the result of pride, dear people. Pride can make us like a Haman in the book of Esther when in the midst of almost universal acclaim, he became consumed with sadness and anger because there was one man, one man, Mordecai, who would not bow down before him. Pride would seek to produce in us such an opinion of ourselves and our talents that simply are not true, but, a, but opinions that incline us to think that every criticism we receive is misguided, that every criticism we receive is malicious. Have you come to think that at times of yourself? A minister can do that. Example, some dear saint comes to her pastor and she says, you know, pastor, I really couldn't follow you on the last point of your sermon. And frankly, I couldn't figure out a thing in the world that you were trying to say. And then he thinks to himself, he doesn't say it outwardly, but he says, why don't you listen, woman? And then he remembers, you know, three months ago, four or five months ago, she said something like that to me. I believe she's got it in for me. That's a signal, dear people, of spiritual pride. Spiritual pride. When one comes to believe that every criticism that is given to them is misguided and malicious, that's the result of spiritual pride. There's a printed sermon by uh, Ray Ortland Jr. He used to be a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Last I was heard, I don't know where he is today. Last I heard, he was pastor in the church in Memphis. But he had a, a printed sermon that I found rather helpful. And it was penetrating to my own conscience. And I'd like to read the concluding application. I don't do this often, but he really nails it. He says... Let us never be intimidated or depressed by our own ordinariness. Most of us are ordinary men. We just aren't that interesting. But that's okay. In fact, it's the whole point. The glory of Jesus shines most brilliantly when preached by ordinary spirit-filled men. And the glory of Jesus is what our preaching is all about. 
Let's not protect our emotional vulnerability by craving positive feedback from our people. Let's be satisfied with the privilege of magnifying Jesus. If we are faithful preachers, our ministries are grander than any human opinion, for we have been sent by Christ. So on the one hand, the pulpit is not about our careers, our names. Let all self-exaltation die in our hearts and in our sermons. Let the greater joy of Christ be our only ambition. A humble self-emptying and a clear conscience before God will fortify our hearts against abusive criticism. And on the other hand, Once we accept how weak we really are, what a wonder that Christ has sent us into the world to preach, fully equipped in every essential with the testimony of God, the message of Christ crucified and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Drinking in compliments makes us more susceptible to being bruised and wounded by criticism. But then there's a fifth mark of inward spiritual pride. And it is what I would call a suspicious and a censorious spirit. A suspicious, censorious, or critical spirit toward others. And especially toward other ministers. Even toward the people of God, our sheep the sheep whom God has placed under our care. Pride would dispose us to be harshly critical and impatient toward the weaknesses of Christ's lambs. Pride makes one more ready to see other, Christ, other Christians' coldness and their declensions than one is ready to see the coldness of the piety of one's own love for God. And pride would cause us to think that when people attempt to do good, that they're operating on the basis of bad and impure motives, or to suspect that the good they're trying to do will not last. At the same time, we're overly critical of God's people. Pride can and does cause us to pass over superficially our own sins and our own shortcomings and to look at our own sins with excuses that will satisfy us well god knows i was tired god knows i had a lot of things on my mind and that's why i snapped at my wife and that's why i was a little bit short with that brother at the door god understands god does understand he understands just how cold and deceitful our hearts can be. But dear people, the fact is that the piety of God's people is far more impressive than ours. Given your lack of leisure to submerge yourself in holy things and in hours of prayer, and given your necessity 
and inescapable need to be in the world with all of its subtle corruptions, I say to you that your love of God and your fastidiousness in seeking to maintain a blameless conscience before God and men is far more impressive, at least than mine. And you have far less advantages than I do. And at the same time, my own faults and my own failures, perhaps known to none but God and ourselves, our sins are far less understandable than other sins are. I remembered a story of a minister in Scotland. He was confessing to a fellow minister. He says, he says, my people, they don't know how I struggle with this or that. They don't know my sins. And the, and the other minister encouraged him and said, Brother, God has veiled it from their eyes that you might be a blessing to them. I heard this story. I hope it's not true. I heard the story about this minister who felt that he was being wronged by certain people in his congregation. And so he made out this list of all the people in the church and all the sins that he thought that they had committed. And then he went to them one by one and said to each of them, this is what you have done. This is what you have done. Dear people, that's a dangerous way to handle God's sheep. That's a dangerous thing. And it's pride that makes it difficult for us to obey a passage like 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 25, that the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. But I want us to think even more about our inclinations to suspect and depreciate the labors and the apparent successes of others, and particularly we who are ministers of other ministers. It seems to me that in this area where our pride can be brought into the sharpest focus for us who are Reformed ministers, our readiness to regard with condescending thoughts every non-reformed preacher, our readiness to censure every non-reformed Christian who seeks to drive out Satan in the name of Christ. Sometimes we think we ought to rebuke them because they're not of us. And we have, I fear, a propensity to judge that no good can come from that prophet from Galilee. That nothing good proceeds from Nazareth. And Galilee and Nazareth is the vast world outside of our own little world. You know how different the Apostle Paul was right. You remember in Philippians chapter 1. And how he was able to rejoice in that Christ was preached. Even though he knew that he was being preached by men who had wrong motives being preached on the part of men who had but one great aim, and that one aim was to intensify his own burden and his own pain. And yet he rejoiced because Christ was being preached. 
I think, too, of how different was Moses, who instead of being protective of his status as the leader of God's people, his status as a prophet, he said, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Now, brethren, I know that I'm cutting some close angles here, and I want you to understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I'm not, I'm not advocating that we gloss over errors as ministers. I'm not suggesting that we expose our people without warning them to that which could be potentially harmful to their souls. But what I am suggesting is that we find ways to protect them which do not involve casting aspersions upon the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people. If there is anything of any enduring spiritual profit it is, that is being accomplished anywhere in the world, then it is the work of the Holy Spirit. And dear people, it is not our solid conviction and hope that the Spirit of God only works in one particular denomination. We confess as the Reformed that God the Holy Spirit can strike a straight line with a crooked stick. And again, I am not advocating everyone who preaches error. That's to be sure, but we recognize where we were. I mean, think about someone who came and gave, to you, gave you the gospel, perhaps. Do you really think that person at that time was a thoroughgoing Calvinist? Of all the people who ought to be witnessing to the grace of God and inviting sinners to come to Christ, it ought to be Calvinist. But who was it that God blessed to witness to you. Well, some of those crooked sticks are not Reformed people, but the Spirit of God is using them. And as far as I understand, it is our duty, it is not our calling to censure or criticize the work of the Spirit of God, but to commend it. Conscience before God demands that we do that. Well, seeking to provide some direction in answering uh, these questions. What are the identifying marks of spiritual pride? I've named five marks of pride that work secretly in the, in the soul. Self-righteousness, attitudes of ingratitude, discontent, covetousness, secret boastfulness, a hatred of correction, suspicious in a censorious spirit. But now more briefly, as I try to close and wrap this up on time, I want to say something about the outward or the external marks of spiritual pride. How does it show itself outwardly to other people? It's bad enough that it would even exist within someone's own heart, but when it leaks out, it is putrid. And very often, the man who leaks it is the last one to smell its stench. Well, we've talked about inward boasting, but what about outward boasting? 
Outward boasting is, a, is an open manifestation of spiritual pride, is it not? A purposeful disclosure or expression or advertisement of that which is designed and calculated to win greater admiration or acclaim for ourselves. Finding ways to tell others how many hours we've spent laboring over a particular sermon. How many books that we've read in the past year. How all these folks have been, quote, helped by us. How much time we spend on our face before God. But dear people, who, ne- who needs to know any of that? Who needs to know any of that? Who needs to know how many books I've read? Who needs to know how many hours I've spent in secret prayer? Who needs to know about our broken hearts and our tears? If they're real, the effects of them will be seen in the church. They will be seen by the people of God. And if the effects of them are seen, we don't want anyone to think that it's our prayers that are accomplishing that. We want them to be focusing upon the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, pride can produce outward lying and deceit. Outward lying and deceit. When we seek to embellish or beautify our reputation. Not simply by telling things that no one else really has a right to know. But embellishing or doctoring up things to make them appear impressive to others. And speaking about time we haven't spent. And speaking about prayers we haven't prayed. And tears we haven't shed. And books we haven't read. All because we're seeking to cultivate or develop a reputation. You see, dear people, pride knows no shame in self-promotion. No shame. It's a good sign when we've been talking to men and something leaked out that perhaps is really private between us and Christ. And we go back and say, you know, I wonder if I actually told the truth in that conversation. You know, I said I read that book. I can't even remember if I finished that book. Pride inclines us to exaggeration about ourselves. Thirdly, open expressions of uncharitable judgments. Open expressions of uncharitable judgments. Here the inward censorious, the negative criticism and cynicism... It becomes verbalized scandal and slander. And we cast others in a negative, unwarranted light. This is an area where all of us in the church of Jesus Christ need to be cautious. There's the pride of a Pharisaic spirit. Pharisaic spirit that says, look at all that I've done. And look at all that I'm doing. And look at what so-and-so hasn't done and what so-and-so isn't doing. That, dear people, is an outward manifestation of spiritual pride. A fourth manifestation of outward pride 
is a contentious spirit, contentiousness and strife. Maybe the most frightening statement about the subtle evil of pride is found in Proverbs 13 and verse 10. Proverbs 13 and verse 10 says, By pride comes nothing but strife. By pride comes nothing but strife. That's scary, dear people. That tells me that if we unwittingly stumble or lapse into spiritual pride, and pride gains the upper hand in us, and we don't even realize it, we don't even know it, we're not even alert to it, we can begin to become those who are promoting strife while we think that we're doing good. When actuality, all that we're doing is acting out of our proud hearts. Our pride can deceive us into believing that we're doing what's right, that we're crusading for Christ, when in reality we're going around causing contention and backbiting and scandalous gossip. Pride will make us contentious men and women. We will contend for our place. We will contend for our names. We will contend for our pet peeves as well. And we will even contend for the indulgence of judging God's people. That's wicked. That's wicked. And our pastor just preached a sermon to us about the danger of judging others. But the Holy Ghost has declared that the servant of the Lord must not quarrel. That he must be gentle to all. Pride is not simply content to let the truth be spoken in love. And wait for the Spirit of God to give repentance. Pride would seek us to to force the issue on others. When we have no power to force the issue. Well, we've surveyed some of the leading marks of spiritual pride. Are we guilty, dear people? We may not all be guilty, but I'm sure of this. We're all susceptible. We're all susceptible. And I'm quite sure that if we're going to enjoy any success in our attempts to defeat spiritual pride as it comes In so many different shapes and forms. One day it comes in this dress. And another day it dresses up like this. In a totally different outfit. If we're going to have any success in overcoming this great evil. We're going to have to come to terms with the reality. That this isn't someone else's sin. This is my sin. And we're going to have to be prepared to say, I'm the man. I'm given to pride. Pride is not another man's problem. It's my problem. Oh, God, help me. I am a prideful man. 
I'm given the proud thoughts. I'm given to an exaggerated view of myself and self-praise and self-congratulation. I am given to a critical spirit. I am given to being contentious. I doubt that many of us have escaped the conflict of David Brainerd when he testified. He wrote this in his journal. I know it to be my indispensable duty to study and qualify myself in the best manner I can for public service. But this is my misery. I naturally study and prepare that I may consume it upon my lust of pride and self-confidence. God help us. Let us pray.